0: Paul has been walking us through his second answer to common objections to grace. And today he's going to add uh, some additional insight as, as he applies this reality of spiritual slavery to how we grow. Last week he showed us this transformation that took place in this perfect Christian testimony. And this morning he's going to show us how we We grow and give us some insights there. And and growth is something that that God expects from from a true Christian. Richard Sibb said, a barren tree is not surprising to find in the wilderness or the desert, and it's left alone. But a barren tree is surprising to find in a garden. That tree will not be left alone. It belongs in the garden, so the master dungs it and prunes it, so it will bear more fruit. A barren tree can remain so. A garden tree cannot. And a Christian is a garden tree. Trials in the Christian life are, are, are that pruning. It's evidence that you belong in the garden and, and God is bringing it so you'll bear more fruit. So if you're a believer and you're here this morning and you're facing uh, difficulty or trial, that's not an evidence of God's displeasure. If it's hard, it's not an indication that God's abandoned you or something's wrong, it's it's just the opposite. Master gardener is carefully and gently cutting away the dead twigs that remain so that you can grow and bear even more fruit and that that fruit would remain to the glory of of the Father. And and he's a a gentle gardener. He loves his garden, so he's not just going to come in and hack away. He's not going to cut too many branches to where the tree will be harmed. He's, he's not going to prune them at the wrong time. He knows everything about the, the tree, and He's doing His masterful work in your, in your life. Just ask Him for strength and joy to, to endure. It will be over soon, and you'll be better for it. But God expects us to grow. And Paul will teach us our part in that process of growth this morning, so after introducing this illustration of slavery to show that Christians are not lawless, Paul then applies it to the spiritual realm in in two parts. And verses seventeen and eighteen, which we covered last week, there was this testimony of transformation that takes place in salvation, where, where your master changes. In verse seventeen. But thanks be to God that you were slaves of sin; you were, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Your master changed. We are no longer slave of sin, but we have become slaves of of righteousness, which is what we saw last week. There was a testimony of what you were before, a testimony of the transformation, and then a testimony of what what you are now. And and the second part is what we'll look at today in verse 19, where, where Paul takes it a step further and applies all of that New spiritual slavery to Christ, he applies it to growing in in, in holiness, in in your part in it. Not only do we have a new master, but we yield to him, just as we once did to our sinful master. But with God, the result is sanctification, instead of increasing lawlessness, like was the case when you were were lost. And today, Paul will describe this spiritual process of change, and he's going to teach us some key components that, that we need to be aware of. Paul's message of grace is the power that leads to both. I mean, grace that saves, and and it's grace that sanctifies, and that grace is what Paul just got got done explaining in chapter 5, and his final statement, as you remember, brings up some questions about it. So he launches into this series of explanations in chapter 6, all of which are focused on how grace deals with sin. The gospel is so one-sidedly shocking that it produces common objections. The objections are so common that God could inscripturate them in a book 2,000 years ago and we would still have, uh, they would still apply to us today because we have the, we have the exact same questions. And Paul deals with, with two of those, those questions, which are really summaries of all the questions, in verses 1 and, and 15. And these two sections provide answers to the common questions about grace. Part 1, we've already covered, verses 1 through 14 which answers the question shall we go on sinning because we're under grace. And Paul says you can't do that because you died to sin and now you're alive to God and part 2 is Romans 6:15 through 23 which answers the question shall we sin because we're not under Old Testament law anymore and Paul says it's not needed because the gospel writes the law in your hearts. The first question focuses on continuing in sin because we're under grace. And this second question is about restraint because we no longer have the law as our master. And it went something like this. If, if you're saying, I am forgiven of all my sin by grace already, then can't I just go on sinning without consequence because God's going to forgive me anyway? And second, if there is no external list of rules that I keep now that I'm saved, then what's holding me back? What, what's keeping my sin from running? Shouldn't we add offense, which is the law? And Paul says if that's what you're thinking, you don't understand how the gospel transforms you because that's the real power that you need, and it comes from grace. People who have been transformed by grace don't want to continue in sin. doesn't mean that they won't sin, but they're not going to just run headlong into it. And they don't need tricks or trinkets of extra rules because they now desire in their heart to please God. And so he uses this analogy of slavery to explain this. He says uh, Christians cannot sin without concern because grace changes their master and they're not lawless under grace because grace makes them obedient to the heart. This law of Christ is now, now written there. And if that hasn't happened, then there's been no salvation. If you're here or you know someone who claims to be a, a believer and they're just sinning without, without concern and they're saying things like, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. They're not a believer, that's what Paul says. There hasn't been a transformation. And the flip side, if you need some external restraints there all the time and there's not an internal desire to do what God wants you to do that's instinctive, just as sin was once instinctive, then there hasn't been a transformation either. Remember, verses 16 through 23 is one long answer to to this second question. And and he gives it in three sections. Verse 16 is a general argument about slavery. Verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves... Then verses 17 and 18 shows how that argument applies spiritually. You're either a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. Verse 19 makes an appeal in light of that, which we'll see today. And then verses 20 through 23 is contrasting the results... And this is the verse that the, contains the, the verse that you know well from the, the Romans' road. We said when you put it all together, there are three arguments that explain how grace operates through spiritual slavery. There's the representation of slavery, the reality of it, and the, the results. And we've covered about half of the second one, which we'll, we'll finish that out, that out today. And by way of reminder, Paul says this first argument is in this representation of slavery. There's a question, there's an illustration, and then there's a principle that that he wants you to get. He begins in verse 16 with an appeal to reason. Do you not know? And he uses this general principle about slavery, which the Romans knew well. I mean, most Romans, Roman Christians even, were slaves. Or they interacted with slaves. Or they owned slaves. And and he repeats this word, obedience, twice. That's the, the part that he that he wants you to focus on. He says, you understand this, so you're asking an unreasoned question. You understand slavery, and then I, what part of it that I want you to see, though, is, is the obedience part. Not every part correlates, but obedience does. All I want you to get out of the illustration of slavery is that slaves obey their masters. That, that's my point, Paul's saying. And grace changes your relationship to God, and it changes your heart so that you now desire... To obey. It doesn't produce lawless people, it produces obedient people. And that obedience produces righteous living. At the end of verse 16. Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. I mean, Paul rightly says obedience from the heart leads to righteousness, that's a byproduct. Then he turns from a general illustration about slavery to this spiritual reality that we all experience. In verses 17 through, through 19. there's the second argument that, that he makes here about spiritual slavery. It's the reality of it. And he starts with the doctrinal side. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of doctrine, that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So after he introduces slavery as an illustration, he now applies it spiritually. He presses it down into the spiritual realm. He says everyone is a slave, either of sin or of righteousness. And he gives one of the clearest testimonies of Christianity that you can find anywhere in the Bible, which is why I say this is the doctrinal side. Paul says those who have been saved are slaves to Christ. And he describes this change of masters that that the gospel brings. I mean, a Christian is a person who has undergone a transformation. Paul says you were something. You were slaves to sin. You were hopelessly bound. But you became something new. You became obedient from the heart to a a doctrine that, that reshapes you. And then you lived differently. It changed your life. You became slaves of righteousness. All by the power of grace. Not by the power of the law. And so God is the one who gets credit for that, which is why we thank Him first. And that's the first part of the Christian testimony. What you were before, you were slaves of of sin. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin. The second part is what you became. You became obedient from the heart. It's obedience, not just to an external code, but it's obedience in the heart. It's, It's inward. This is where the obedience takes place, Paul says. It's from within. And you became obedient in the heart to a specific form or content of teaching which is transforming you, like a Play-Doh mold, we said. You're being pressed into it. You embrace it, you embrace the Bible, and then the Bible conforms you to, to reality. And Paul says there's a specific teaching or doctrine, and it's an imprint or a mold that's conforming you into its shape. It's something that the law can never do. Paul says it's the exact opposite of what people were accusing of. You. you have grace, if you don't have a fence, people are just going to run. They're going to flood wherever they want to go. And, and Paul says the gospel of grace actually puts, the, puts it in your heart where the law can never write it, and it transforms you into its mold, unlike the external work of the, the law. And then in verse 19, he describes how that molding takes place. And the massive role that, that, that you play that you play into it. Look at verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So here it is, practically, the reality of slavery, practically. Doctrinally, first, this is what happened to you You've been saved, and now here's what that looks like practically. Paul now applies the spiritual slavery that he just got done describing in verse 18. He says, you have become slaves of righteousness. That's the truth. And now in verse 19, he makes an appeal to pursue this new way of life by explaining three things. He explains the weakness of your flesh. There's an indwelling propensity. He makes a comparison of pursuits. And then he describes promised results. This is still under part two of this reality of slavery. But verse 19 focuses on the Christian duty as a slave. Verse 17 describes what took place in salvation. You were a slave to sin. You could not escape. You were bound. Verse 18 shows the result of grace. You have become slaves of righteousness. And we give God thanks for that. It's His grace that that accomplished that. And now in verse 19, we get the marching orders that are to us as believers that we have in light of that. So now present your members as slaves. And the truth of verse 18 leads to this exhortation in verse 19. And Paul begins with a reminder that, that though you have a new master, there's still an indwelling propensity to sin. Verse 19, he says... I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Then there's a comparison of pursuits. He compares the intensity of before and after salvation. Verse 19, For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness. There's a, there's a change of masters that demands an intense pursuit of Christ and it ends with this incremental results of both in mean, one pursuit results in further lawlessness and the other pursuit results in sanctification or holiness the change that happened in the perfect tes- the perfect christian testimony was primarily focused on god We're giving thanks to him. He's the one who delivered us over to this form of doctrine that's transforming us. But in 19, he turns to your part in it. There's a yielding that must take place that brings growth over time. And peppered in there, there's some subtle and not so subtle warnings that that, that are going to help you. Or to say it another way, Christian change is not something that just happens, but something that results in in effort over, over time. Don't think of sanctification, Paul says, like, like a lightning bolt. It's something that happens over time where you yield your wills, choices, and in, in, in your decisions. So stop looking for the, the perfect church, the perfect worship service, the perfect book, the perfect you know, sermon, perfect feeling, whatever it is. There's surely a moment of change. That's the salvation described in verse 18, where, where you gained a new master. You were freed from sin, and you became slaves of righteousness. But it doesn't stop there, Paul says. That's where it begins. And then it works out in our lives, which Paul describes for us in verse 19. And I mean, he really just contrasts the, the two ways to, to live here. It's a common theme in the Bible. There's only two, there are only two ways. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked in Psalm 1. There's the broad road and the narrow gate that Jesus describes in the the Sermon on the Mount. And now here's the way of the two masters that Paul uses here. And he begins with this reminder of our indwelling flesh so we know what we're up against. Look at how he starts verse 19. There's this indwelling propensity. He says, "I'm, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. I mean, this is like a, a parenthesis that, that between the verses. I mean, you could take that out in verse 18 and verse 19, which it would just flow together. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, and so on and so forth. But Paul puts it here on purpose. He puts this parenthesis here as a subtle warning as we work out our newfound slavery. He puts it there before he gives us the command to remind us of something. I mean, he, he, he points out that he's using this analogy of slavery because of our weakness. That's what he means when, when he says, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm, I'm giving an illustration that, that, that's common to humanity, common to you Romans, which is about slavery. But I'm giving that because of the weakness. I mean, most commentators, if, if you read them, see this phrase as meaning one of two things. It's like Paul saying... I'm using this illustration be, because we're really dense as human beings. We need illustrations to help us understand. That, that's one angle. The other angle is, is, is it's either that or he's saying, I'm using this illustration because our fallen natures hinder us from understanding, and so I have to make it plain what we are. We are slaves. And quite frankly, neither one of those answers do it, do it for me. I mean, surely that's part of what Paul means, but I don't think that's all that Paul means because of the specific phrase that he uses. I mean, it's true. He's saying, don't take the slavery illustration too far. And we talked about how we think of American slavery. That's even different from, from Roman slavery. He showed us what he wanted us to focus on. Slaves obey their masters, not anything beyond that. So it's true. He's saying, don't take the slavery illustration too far. Christians are now slaves given over to a new master, but but we're not like secular slaves, Doug Moo said. We're we're not degraded by our new master. We don't fear fear him like a cruel human owner. And we're not treated like arbitrary property by, by the Lord. I mean, Jesus is a kind master. He's the kind of master you want, especially after your old one. And Paul is surely doing some of that He's not apologizing for, for using the illustration of slavery. There are some people that say that. I mean, they're saying that this, this parenthesis is like, like Paul saying, slavery is so dis, distasteful, I need to say I'm sorry for using it. It's the best I can do as a human. I mean, that doesn't hold any water at all. And we know that because he goes on two more times in this verse, even after he would then apologize by, by using the concept of, of slavery. I think there's something far more helpful going on here. And quite frankly, that's entirely obscured by by the ESV translation, which I love. I just don't like it here. I, I don't think it's a mistake that Paul uses a specific expression. He mentions, I'm using this human illustration, because of the weakness of your flesh. The ESV says because of your natural limitations. I think that obscures what Paul's saying. I don't think it's a throwaway phrase meaning human limits on our understanding. I think Paul uses this specific phrase to remind us of something, to remind us of the weakness of our flesh. I mean, Paul's been repeatedly talking about being a slave to sin. That's in the macro. We're slaves to to sin. In verse 16, either of uh, sin resulting in death, verse 17, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, verse 18, having been freed from sin... But here in verse 19, he zooms in on yielding our members again. So the macro, your slaves of sin. And now he starts talking about yielding our members, making individual choices, our minds, our wills, our eyes, our hands. Verse 19, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity. So now present your members. Now, now he's down in the weeds. The last time he did this, he reminded us that they're still lurking. A danger that you must fight against. Remember, there are two questions here, and they're parallel. So the first part, through verse 14, and the second part, 15 and beyond. Look back how Paul, Paul zooms in on the weeds here in verses 12 and 13 when he answers the first question. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the the dead. I mean, Paul has been saying you've been freed from sin's tyranny. And we said when we got to verse 12, we said, what do you mean, Paul? Why would we obey lusts of our mortal bodies? Why do we need to worry about that? I mean, we've we've been set free. And Paul says, you have. You have a new master, but but there's still something lurking in the weeds that you need to be aware of when you're presenting your, your members. So here once again, he says, let me remind you that the way you've been freed from sin's tyranny, sin's slavery, sin still has a voice. There's still weakness in your flesh. He's reminding us of what, what remains even after this, this perfect Christian testimony, even after, after the transformation. It, and It's what you have to fight against. And he tells us that before he gives us the command to grow. And If you remember Lloyd-Jones' very helpful illustration of the two fields, you're in this field working and there's a road and you've been now transferred into this other field and, and you can still hear the old master calling from commands from the other side. And sometimes you, you're you tempted to listen, but you're not in his field anymore. So in his answer about these two questions about how grace clearly changes you, Paul says, let me remind you of something. You've been changed, but you still have this thing called the flesh to deal with, which is evident even in this illustration that I must use. There's an indwelling propensity. Grace saves you, and grace is powerful enough to sanctify you, but remember, you're not glorified yet. And that weakness can overtake you if you're not careful. There is an indwelling propensity to sin. So you must engage in this intense pursuit. Look, look at, you at verse 19. Here's the second part. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness. I mean, Paul then adds the one command in this whole passage right here. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness. That's the imperative after a long list of indicatives. And he sets up a command, this command, with a comparison to describe the intense pursuit of righteousness that we must engage in. I mean, he says, just as, or in the same way, you presented your members to sin, so now present them to righteousness. And and Paul draws your mind back to to our unsaved lives. And he says, remember how hard you went after sin? You should go even harder after Christ if, if you're his slave. He draws our attention to the flesh that's still in there. And then he takes us all the way back to our unsaved life. I mean, the idea is that you should now serve God with the same passion and dedication that once characterized your unsaved life. Do you see that? Just as, so now. Just as the links to which you once pursued money and lust and drink and pleasure, so now pursue holiness and righteousness. It's a comparison of pursuits and a contrast of goals that we'll see in a minute. I mean, Paul says, remember your old ways. I don't like to remember my old ways. The Bible says forgetting those things which are are behind. But there is some profit to remember. You remember what the Lord saved you from. And in this case, remember how you went after the ways of the world, specifically... How you did it with great vigor, Paul says. Just as you stayed up late so you could drink, and you drove long distances to look for a liaison, and you practically gave your body to be burned to make money, you worked hard for your old master in pursuit of sin. So he says, now you have a new master. Pursue righteousness. I mean, salvation doesn't doesn't uh, put the gear in neutral. There's a command that's here. It surely shouldn't be with less vigor. It shouldn't be a dispassionate pursuit of Christ. And there's clearly a different target now. I mean, Paul zooms in on the the specific aims of both lives. He talks about this intense pursuit, and then he talks about the, the aim. Your unsaved life ran toward a target, and he mentions it here. I'm speaking in human terms. Because of the weakness of your flesh... For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, he says, or uncleanness, which in Paul's writing is, a, is an allusion to sexual sin. And lawlessness, which is sinful behavior, that's what you went after. Thomas Schreiner said together it denotes a, a life of disillusion, a life that has no boundaries. You just did whatever you wanted to do. And the result of... Presenting your members or handing yourself over to these things was a life characterized by sin and transgression of God's moral law. But on this side of salvation, there must be a handing over of your members to righteousness. I mean, he uses the same word here. Just as you presented your members, so now present your members. Presenting in both cases is a word of the will. It's a word of choice of intention. Just as the slavery to sin is not apart from your from your will, neither is submission to God. I mean unsaved people don't sin against their wills. It's like, oh please, oh please, don't make me pop the top on that beer. No, no, no. I don't want to I don't want to be immoral. It's the way not the way unsaved people lived or live. They desire it. They freely pursue it. It doesn't mean they always like the results. I mean the results say our, Paul says our uncleanness, physically, conscience, and lawlessness brings its consequences. Your mother was right. Nothing good ever happened after dark, after midnight. An addict may, may want to be free from his sin, but, but because he's a slave, the desire for it is greater than the desire to be free. So he goes back to the gut pile over and over and over. Ed Welch calls that the banquet in the grave. It comes from Proverbs seven twenty seven, speaking of the adulterous woman. Her house is the way to Sheol. Her house is the way to the grave, going down to the chambers of death. And you remember Proverbs 7, the, the guy's just moving along, just being drawn right into it. And he's being drawn right into the grave. I mean, a sinner loves and hates their master. And Paul says only God can liberate you from that situation. Only he can break sin's draw and plant new desires in you. But Paul says that is what God has done for you by grace. So if you look at your Christian life right now and you're doing less for God than you did for sin, this is a wake-up call to say you need to make some changes. This is just like the parable of the unrighteous steward that Jesus gives in Luke 16. You remember that, that odd parable about a man who's unrighteous, that's, that's praised, seems to be praised by the, by, by the Lord? It's the one about the man who is about to lose his job for being a poor steward, so he goes and he, he fudges the books? Luke 16. He finds out he's about to be, to be fired... And the manager says to himself, the guy who's about to be fired says to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the, the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that I may be removed so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. He comes up with a plan, a scheme. He's like he has power of attorney. So he rushes around and he settles all of his master's debts for less money. And the master who's about to fire him is a worldly man himself, and he saw the shrewdness of it, and he was impressed. Look at what the master says, verses 6 verses 8 and 9. And his master praised, and here's the key word, the unrighteous manager. Why? Because he acted shrewdly. And now here is the Lord's point. Of the parable. Why did Jesus give this parable about a, about a wicked man doing this? His point is, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by the means of the wealth of, a wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So sons of this age, sons of light. World, eternal dwellings. I mean, Jesus is not praising a guy for cooking the books, right? He is saying unsaved people spend more time and energy pursuing things that perish than believers do with things that will never fade away. And that shouldn't be the case. That's what Jesus is saying. Put forth the same effort. Don't be cooking books. But understand what's at stake and go after it. That's what Paul's saying here. Just as you presented your, your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. I mean, in sanctification, God is responsible for it, but there's a means by which it happens, which begins with your effort. I understand that there are factors, there are matters of the heart, there's all kinds of things. So, this is a general statement may not apply to you. But can I just cut to the sh- chase and, and say something that may sting? You may not be growing because you're spiritually lazy. What's this verse saying? If you're not pursuing God, then don't blame Him if there's little fruit. At least if, it's, if you're not pursuing God in the same way that you once did whenever you loved your sin, that's just, that's just illogical. Or worse, don't be surprised if sin shows back up in your life. That's why he starts with this reminder of the weakness that remains. I mean, a Christian who does not yield and pursue with intensity has massive potential, but he has the warmth of an unlit fire. You have all the parts you've got the wood and the paper and the match. But if you don't yield yourself and obey, you never touch the match to the paper, and so there's no ignition, so there's no heat. You ever been to the ER? I think we mentioned this the other day. In the ER, when they ask you that crazy question, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is the pain? And you say, well, that's enough for me to be right here, right now, rather than at home, because this is not where I want to be. So how hard are you you pursuing the things of the Lord? On a scale of 1 to 10, what's your throttle set on? I mean, frankly, there are a lot of Christian lives that are wasted because the motor is set on idle. And Paul says it wasn't set on idle whenever you were a sinner. You, you didn't say, well, I've got to sleep in on Sunday, or I've got to have family time on Sunday night, or whatever it is that, that you're saying. As a Christian, you have something to obey. You you yield to it. And when you do, it brings forth fruit. Look at verse 19. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to unrighteousness, resulting in sanctification. After having us compare our pursuits, he reminds us of the results. And by doing so, he emphasizes this incremental process of change. I mean, one results in further lawlessness and the other results in sanctification. You see that? I mean, just like there's a process of corruption and degeneration when you were unsaved, where sin increased, uncleanness, lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, there's also a process of sanctification leading to ever-increasing conformity to Christ. I mean, growth doesn't happen overnight. There are many matters that can affect it, but, but the big picture Paul gives here is simple. He says, sin begets sin, and righteousness brings about sanctification. That's what he says in verse 19, resulting in further lawlessness. You who habitually yielded to uncleanness and lawlessness, which resulted in more lawlessness. He says, one sin led to another sin, which led to a bigger one, and and so on. Have you ever wondered how someone ends up so deep in sin? Paul says they don't start out that way. They yield to one desire and then another, and then they go down the road to a place so deep that, that, that they've drowned and they're, they've shipwrecked their life. Or even as Christians, how do people start out by by just just drifting away, and then they end up walking away from their spouse. I and mean, Paul says the answer is right here. Obeying the flesh produces more lawlessness. Sin leads to more sin. It progresses in depth. You need greater sin to give you the same thrill that you got from the, from the first one. And on the flip side, sanctification works the same way. It's an incremental process as well, which the Bible calls sanctification. The end of verse 19. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And you and I know the first part of that well, because it's what we once lived whenever we were, we were lost. We were slaves of sin, and we followed our own desires. That led to wicked deeds, which led to more sin. But now that you're a Christian, you yield yourself to Christ as his slave. And yielding to him produces more and more righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's a description of how you progress in, in both. It's like walking out into a lake. There's a gradual slope that leads from shallow to deep water. When you first get saved, you're, 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 in, you're in the ankle-deep water. You're just happy to be clean, splashing around in it. That's one. Nothing wrong with that. But then you should move on till you get out to your neck and then over your head and you learn to swim. You've been saved for a long period of time and you're still splashing around behind the rope in the, in the kiddie section. Paul's saying, you need to go farther. You get the other way, the same way. You start ankle deep and you end up over your head. Impurity and lawlessness means leads to more lawlessness. I mean, Paul just reminded us in verses seventeen and eighteen that sin once had you so far from the shore that you could not swim back without somebody rescuing you. And then he says, Thanks be to God that you were rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ, and now that you're that you're living for him, you put forth effort. And remember growing means following a similar process in the opposite direction. But with greater intensity. And your li- uh, than your unsaved life because there's a greater target that you're aiming at. You know what this is here to tell us? It's here to tell us that there are no magic tricks in growth. You yield your members decision by decision to the Lord, and that brings about sanctification. You don't start mature, you start like a small seed, which grows into a sapling and then grows into a tree. But if growth stops, he warns us in this very first point: if, if your heart sets idle long enough, then, as Richard Sibb says, the devil has a bellow full of air to blow on the seeds of the flesh to stir them up—the stuff that's still in there, that some of which you have even forgotten about. It's like John Piper's illustration of the of the science project in the beaker. You remember in high school in chemistry class, you you mix the the, the mud and the water together and you, you shook the beaker up and, and it was all milky and cloudy and you left on Friday and you came back in on Monday and the, there was clear water and there was sediment in the bottom of the, of the beaker. Paul says that's like your heart. Sediment's down in there. Don't forget there's mud at the bottom of the well. You, you, can, you can stir that up. Piper says God sometimes does that. He comes along and bumps our beaker and stirs the sediment up to reveal to us what's in our heart. You sang about that in the song so that God can remove it. If you sit idle long enough, the mud can be stirred up, and the devil's happy to stir up the mud. It's also a reminder that the small things in life lead to the big ones. I mean, small compromises lead to massive ones, and small choices to obey leads to greater faithfulness. It should be encouraging. I've quoted MacArthur on this before. You've heard it. He said when a person falls, they don't fall far. They're already close to the ground. And when a person is exposed in public sin, they've had a thousand indiscretions in their heart already that you never saw because they were in their heart. And in each one of those, God gave them an opportunity to repent. But You're just now finding out about it. So you're shocked, but but in their hearts there have been all types of things going on. Always remember the private sin that you deal with. God in His mercy will give you a chance to to deal with it, but if you don't, he'll love you enough to bring it public. But in a similar way, Paul says, in the other direction, you grow one day at a time, one choice at a time. And as you do, remember, there's a good gardener who is lovingly managing his trees. So if you do all that Paul says here, one of the ways that the Lord puts fertilizer on growth is through his intimate and and careful pruning But here there's a reminder of the weakness that, that remains. There's a comparison of pursuits before and after salvation, and there's a, an explanation of, of the process where they both lead. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're, you're in over your head. And you know you are. You're drowning. And, and if you feel that, you, that is so good. <laughs> you say, well, it doesn't feel good. It's good because you're aware. God's loved you enough to allow your sin to grow so that you'll deal with it. I mean, one of the methods that God uses, the methods that, that God uses in dealing with us when we're unrepentant is, is to take his hand off, is to, is to give us what, what we want. He removes his restraint, if you will. And then when that happens, sin grows. It's like it's like a stretching balloon, and so does, so does the consequences. And it's often only then. When it gets so big that we can't deal with it on our own, we see the seriousness of our evil, and then, and then we repent. And So that's God's grace. Why don't you come to him today and say, Lord, help me. I'm in over my head. He'll help you. He's a good gardener. He really is. And if you're being faithful, you're doing these things that are here, Paul says, don't grow weary in well-doing. It will result in sanctification, but that takes time. But it starts with choice to yield. And then it looks like every day you're just yielding your members to, to the Lord over and over and over and, and over. If you ever get discouraged in your Christian life, you, you, you say you look at today and you say, I, I can't really see I've done anything for the Lord. Then, then go back a little farther. Take a week. You say, I, I, can't, I can't really see that I've done anything for the Lord. Go back a little farther and take a month. Keep going back at some point you're going to be able to see a pattern of, of yielding, a pattern of obedience. And that should encourage you. If you can't see a pattern of yielding to the Lord, then that's a problem. Or if you see the opposite pattern, that's a problem too. We have a good master. And he's transformed us and he wants us to live for him. He wants us to grow. And this is how growth happens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. How you you tell us what you've done, but but then you don't leave us out of the equation. You work through means. And I am so thankful, Lord, that you've done that through a gospel of grace. And I would pray for anyone in here this morning, Lord, who's over their head. Oh, Lord, I pray that they would... It would take the the life preserver that that you, you happily fling to them. And I pray you'd encourage every Christian in the fight. In Jesus' name, amen.